millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies, from the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords. If it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. This week we are thrilled to be joined again by legendary military film advisor, Dale Dye. Dale is joining us today to talk about his work on Masters of the Air. Dale, welcome. It's great to have you back on the show. Thanks. It's always great to be uh, with you guys. And uh, particularly, you know, I feel like I'm home talking to home. I I spent (laughs) two and a half months over there. (laughs) Oh, yeah, of course. Right. Well, I mean, that leads us in, you know, really nicely. I mean, the first question that I have is, did you and your team uh, run your sort of classic boot camp? Because obviously the cast's roles as... U.S. Army Air Force crews are arguably much less physical than, say, the infantry that were in Saving Private Ryan or Band of Brothers. Um, so what, what sort of things did you do with the cast to bring them into that military mindset? Well, we were we were a little worried at first, to be honest with you, um, mm. because part of our full immersion sort of style of doing these things is to own these guys for 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um, we couldn't do that because of the pressure of production time and, and a number of other things. Uh, the more I got to thinking about it with my executive officer, uh, we talked about it. We said, wait a minute, you know, it actually works if you think about it this way. Uh, guys who were flew uh, from UK uh, over Nazi-occupied Europe uh, during World War II uh, flew for eight or ten hour missions, and then they would return to base and and live what in those days could be viewed as relatively uh, sedate existence. Um, so let's use that rather than insisting that the guys stay with us 24 hours. We'll we'll deal with them for about 12, 14 hours a day. Then we'll let them go and do what the guys in the Eighth Air Force did. They go to the pub. They go to the club. They do whatever they can. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I said, let's use that experience. And so we did. Uh, we uh, we were intense uh, in in our, our preparation. Uh, we did what we usually do. We did our standard physical training, 
which is to get them focused um, mm-hmm. and, and aware that this is a bigger deal than themselves individually. And then we approach it. We adopted a kind of a what I would call a crawl, walk and then run uh, methodology. So we started with the minutest of details. What is your uniform like and, and how do you have to wear it? And uh, how do you get that 50 mission crush in your in your hat? Right. And uh, and then we moved on from there into a specifics about the organization of the 8th Air Force, uh, about Thorpe Abbott's and other ba- uh, former RAF bases uh, in uh, West Anglia and then uh, or East Anglia. And then um, we began to talk about the B-17, uh, the Flying Fortress, uh, the various positions, the various responsibilities. And, uh, and we did that for two solid weeks with upwards of uh, 100 guys in the cast. So it was it was a tough teaching task. Uh, it's always tough when you're in a classroom. Um, but we we used as many visual aids as we could. The prop guys uh, and and set designers were great. They let us borrow stuff like dummy bombs and fuses and that sort oh, of cool. thing. So mm. so we were able to uh, I think in in the two weeks we were given uh, at the rate of about twelve or fourteen hours a day we were able to cram a lot into that particular program. At the same time, let the guys decompress once they were released for the day, just as a bomber crew, assuming they made it back to UK, just as a bomber crew was able to do in World War II. So that was kind of our approach. Mm, Wow, yeah. So my next question really leads from that, really. Um, Is there anyone out of the main cast that surprised you in, in terms of getting into like the role and the mindset of a of an eighth air force crewman bomber crewman i i they all they all did very well frankly yeah. um, look um i knew who they were uh because i had done my research and that sort of thing mm-hmm. uh, i knew who callum turner was and i knew that we'd have to focus on him watch his british accent and that sort of thing <laughs> yeah. um and uh, you know one of the things that i worried about was here we had Austin Butler um, playing Major Gail Clevin, who who um, is best known to audiences worldwide for portraying Elvis. And he did a beautiful job, I thought, in that mm. particular film. And I said, but how do I take Elvis and, and get him into a 1940s mindset and get him into a B-17 uh, uh, pilot mm. situation? Uh, frankly, uh, he did great. Uh, I kept watching him to see if, you know, he'd say, thank you very much, something that <laughs> was so Elvis. Slip into it, yeah, yeah. It absolutely, yeah. but he, he just stepped right up. And when he sets his mind to it, he, he becomes the character that he was due to portray. And and he did very well. Mm, yeah, he's one of the standouts, I think, in the, in the cast. You know, he, he did a very good job. I mean, mm. they're all pretty great, oh, aren't yeah. they? I mean, yeah, you're instantly in those cockpits with them when they're when they're you know on a mission. You, they do bring you into the scenes. Um, so Dale, you've worked on dozens of movies depicting you know countless historical periods, and I know that you always do a hell of a lot of research when you go into these projects. But just how familiar were you, were you with the sort of experiences of you know the U.S. Army Air Force during the war? Well, look, uh, I'm I'm very fortunate to be pretty well plugged into the uh, to the military establishment and the historian establishments uh, mm. around the world. Uh, 
so I was able to get access to some some genuine training manuals, uh, as well as hundreds, literally hundreds of memoirs of uh, wow. eight Air Force air crewmen, bomber air crewmen, B-17 crewmen. And of course, we had uh, Don Miller's great book as, as sort of a touchstone. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, we we have to, as we often do when we're doing World War II uh, uh, productions, we had to get into that mentality ourselves. I mean, hell, I think I was the only guy there other than my exo that was even born during World War II. Uh, <laughs> and so so we had to and that show you how old I am. And let's not go there. But at any rate, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> um, but I found myself reading these things and said, boy, you know, if, if we were to take this manual uh, about um, how to be a, a, an air gunner and present it to a kid today in British forces or in, uh, in the U.S. forces and say, OK, here's everything you need to know, we'd be laughed off the base. I mean, this stuff seems um, in a very patriotic flag waving fashion. This stuff seems um, difficult for today's sort of, um, you know, candid guys to, to look at and say, well, is this, are they really like that? Yeah, they were. Mm -hmm. And that was the mentality. And we had to put ourselves in that mentality when we were teaching so that we would demonstrate as we as we taught and as we demonstrated, we would show them that this is a mentality that these people lived with. And it's how they grew up. It was how they were raised. And this is what we expect you to adopt. And that was a difficult uh, hurdle mm. to get over. Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I think you, you know, it, show, it shows in the in the show that you did because they you do you suspend your sort of I'm not watching Hollywood actors anymore. I'm watching a bomber crew. I, I think it over the course of the first three episodes. I think it does. It does get that across. Yeah, but, you know, one of one of the things that was it was difficult. We we are much pro, more profane in our uh, speech than they were mm -hmm. in World War II, in the days of the nineteen forties. Uh, so, getting a young actor to say something like "gee whiz" rather mm -hmm. than "son of a bitch" is is difficult. Um, and but mm -hmm. you got to get them there, and you've got to make them feel that that's okay. Mm. You know, they're not being cheesy, they're not being corny. It's mm. just the way people spoke. So we always had that challenge in front of us. Yeah. There's that scene where Crosby, after he thought he got hit, isn't he? And he goes, oh, gee whiz, Cros, I thought you'd bought it, you know. <laughs> it's a great line. He delivers it. It's a funny line. It's sure. good. But, yeah. but you've got to say it believably. Yeah, with conviction, of course. Yeah. Um, so our, this is our first um, question from one of our listeners, uh, Chris Richards. He, in fact, was an extra on the show, and he, he asked us to say thank you for helping him with the stretcher-bearing scene um, on, on the show. He you know, passes on his regards. Um, but he asks, was there anything that you discovered researching in the build-up to advising on the series or in the production itself that really sort of struck struck you or stood by you during the production there were literally hundreds of things and and by the way uh my compliments on on how well he learned that stretcher scene i remember exactly what he was talking about it oh, was fantastic. very difficult to pull a wounded man it was like a, a a piece of floppy sausage pulling him out of that aircraft and we had to very carefully rehearse that oh, and yeah. he was part of it and i appreciate it 
Great. But there were hundreds, hundreds of things that uh, that I, I immediately had these epiphany moments about. Uh, standing outside a B-17, it looks huge. Four mm. big engines and, oh, my God, there's just, just a, a monster. But then you get inside it, and it's like a damn sardine can. You know, it's it's cramped in there, and it's hard to move around. Um, and because it was really a bomb truck. It was designed to carry bombs and everything else was sort of ancillary. Um, so that that kind of uh, affected me. And then and then it, it occurred to me as we began to train that a bomber crew, 10 men in a, in a B-17, could actually be divided kind of like a football. I'm going to talk about American football here. But um, it it was the offense guys. And that's the bombardier, the navigator, the radio operator, the pilot, the co-pilot. Those mm-hmm. they play offense. Mm-hmm. Get us there, drop the bombs. And then there's the defensive team that comes on the field, and that's the tail gunner, the two waist gunners, the ball turret gunner, the top turret gunner, who's also the the flight engineer. And so we had to think in terms of offensive and, and defense. Mm. I began to think of it like like American football a little bit. That was an epiphany. Um, and and the other thing that got me, um, and I, I fell back on my own experiences in combat a little bit with this, and I said, you know, uh, it, it's amazing to me. These guys take off from some base in East Anglia, um, in, our, in our case with the Bloody 100s, uh, Thorpe Abbott's, mm-hmm. which our set designers, by the way, created down to the absolute T. Yeah, the great. bar especially is amazing. It's incredible. Yeah, out, incredible. out near Devon Barracks. And, yeah. uh, and I thought, well, what we've got here are 18, 19, 20, 21-year-old men who know, who know damn well after the first couple of missions that the odds are against them. They're stacked against them. And they've seen this horrible death in the air where a bomber just disintegrates or nobody can get out of it because it's in that death spiral. They return, assuming they do, they return to uh, East Anglia and they know that they got to do it again. They got to do it the next day. There's a certain mindset in there. And and I thought to myself on the times that I've been able to sleep a little bit uh, in combat. And I thought, you know, when I wake up, I got to do it again. I got to do it again. And I might not survive the next time. Mm-hmm. And so we we tried to preach that a bit. We tried to say, look, put yourself in a sort of a doomed mindset. The odds are against you, but you are courageous enough. You are brave enough to challenge those odds every day to take off into combat and, and try to get a mission done. Mm-hmm. Why? Simply because it's the right thing to do in a world at war. It's good versus evil in those days. And and that should be clear in your mind. And especially with guys like Crosby and, and uh, uh, Rosenthal, we had to get that through to them because the instinct is to say nobody would think that way. Yeah, they did. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, we still have a few around who think that way. Yeah. Uh, and they serve our nations. Mm-hmm. No, without a doubt. My next question is, um, what for you was the most like challenging part of, of your role on set you know is there anything that, that jumps out that was saying oh boy that was a tough one well the tough one was uh 
as you probably know at this point, uh, special effects are absolutely the star of the show. Mm. Um, and, and that's as it should be. But um, what what got me now, I'm, I'm an actor and I've, I've worked against uh, green screen and, and that sort of thing yeah, where they absolutely uh, the computer generates an image behind you and that sort of sure. thing. But in this case, because of the advance in the technology, uh, we had surround green screen. Only it wasn't green screen. It was live action stuff. Yeah. That literally, literally yeah. a, a pilot in a mock-up cockpit looked around and here was those aircraft. It wasn't, mm. and it was in, in a, in a multidimensional sort of uh, presentation. Yeah. So that it, I would sit there daily and say, how in the hell do they do that? And, uh, and, but the neat thing was it really helped the performance. It really helped the actors. Because they once they were time. in that, that cockpit mock-up on a gimbal, which would allow it to turn, then the, tech, the technicians could uh, synchronize what was happening behind them to what was supposed to be happening in the script. So really, it was like, like being there in live action. Mm -hmm. uh, and that just absolutely blew my mind. The other challenge, I guess, um, was that, as usual in one of these things, uh, we had hot and cold running directors. Uh, <laughs> you know, here'd come this guy, here'd come this gal, here'd come this guy. And and part of my mission was to make sure that they understood what had been done before and mm. what could be done so that I, I was kind of have to be at their elbow all the time and tugging on it and say, wait a minute. No, you can't do that because the last time we did this uh, and that presented a challenge. But the, uh, I think the great thing about it was all of the directors uh, came in understanding that they were in on the capstone of the Spielberg Hanks trilogy, World War II trilogy, uh, started with Band of Brothers and then with the Pacific and now mm -hmm. uh, Masters of the Air or the Aviation Air War, the uh, War in the Air uh, in World War II in aviation. And so they were all very anxious, very keen to uh, do the right thing. So you didn't find anybody pushing back all the time and say, well, yes, but I love this camera angle. Okay, yeah, but you can't do that because of this thing. So all the directors were really uh, keen to get it right, and, mm. and they, they worked hard on it. Yeah, no, it's, it shows. It's a very – it doesn't seem like someone's come in and they've changed mm. – the shots or change yeah. the makeup of an episode it, it does feel very everyone's working to it, the same it issue. is that continuity yeah mm. yeah it feels cohesive doesn't it because mm. you have the you have those first four episodes with carrie and then you've got a couple of other people that have one or two episodes and i think there's one that has uh, one director that has a single episode so you mentioned there like there was there was certain things that they you know they would come in and, and they would consider doing what kind of things would that be would that be the sort of um focusing on a character or would that be something more minute like you know the way a, a shot was set up that kind of thing the script pretty well drives that mm. um and and what i meant was you didn't find anybody suddenly rewriting the script and and deciding yeah. it was going to go in one direction or another but there were em emphases on uh, individual characters. Uh, directors uh, felt, in some cases, it would it was better to spend more camera time on a particular a position in the aircraft, mm. um, or a position, a particular uh, mood or emotion that a character was going through, and that's fine. That's that's part of their art, and and so um, the the key was that it, at the bottom. 
at the bottom line, everybody felt really that uh, that we had to we had to make it a smooth transition from director to director. It all had all had to have the same feel, and they accomplished that. I think. Off off the back of you know the mention of the the virtual on set technology. How did that kind of impact the way that you advised on set? So obviously, if an actor has a question about something, you can lighten them. But did the fact that they could see the aircraft coming at them, that kind of thing, did that impact the way that you advised them? Well, no, because I, I'd start. I'd started uh, with that sort of mentality in in the mm-hmm. basic training phase. Um, and we talked about the dangers of flak and the dangers of uh, enemy aircraft and what they presented. Uh, the difficulty of hitting one with a with a you know marksmanship with a fifty caliber AM2 uh, machine gun uh, when both airplanes are moving in opposite directions, it's not like the old duck hunter lead thing. You, you've got to learn how to do this. Yeah. Um, but there were there are always times I think when when an actor will come to me and he'll say, Captain, uh, I seem to be particularly worried about. X, Y, or Z in this scene. Is that right? And sometimes I say, absolutely. You're a human being and you're at risk. And and of course you're thinking about that. Or there'd be times when I'd say, listen, no, forget that. Try to forget yourself. Think about the aircraft. Think about the mission. Think about the crew. Uh, Think about what little things you have to do, A, B, C, D, in in a cockpit. And focus on that. Get that done. That'll be the right stuff. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello there. Sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support. Now back to the show. I've watched it recently, and I wondered if you did show if you would have shown it to the to the chaps. There's a really great, um, I think it's 1943 44 um, aerial uh, waste gunnery video that was done by Warner Brothers um, with Mel Blanc voicing a a gunner um, who oh, voiced sure. Bugs Bunny. Did you show? Things like that to them, like you know, we, proper films. Yeah, we did. We, we had. Oh wow. We had. We had several of them uh, that we found. Uh, there was uh, the Mel Black Bugs Bunny one, and there were several others with some goofy guy that, that mm. you know, the War Department in, yes, in those the ones. Yeah. put together as cartoons mm. because they thought, you know, uh, let's not get too heavy here. The way to teach, you know, these kids grew up reading comic books and the funny papers. 
and uh, and this is a way to teach them. So we, we had five or six that we showed, uh, particularly in aerial gunnery, um, some business about uh, aircraft maintenance on the ground. We had a film. Uh, we had bomb loading on uh, yeah. in a, a sort of a cartoonish uh, uh, presentation. So mm-hmm. yeah, we uh, we found those things That's and great. We download them and actually show them as they did uh, during basic yeah. training. Yeah, but well, how were they very received? Few of those people, very few of the people knew who, who the hell Bugs Bunny was, but, <laughs> but we got over that. How was they? How were that? How was that received by the cast? Did they felt like they got a lot from those? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I think they're like young men everywhere. Uh, the heavier you get, and the more you demand that they read and memorize. So, and we've all been through this in our mm-hmm. school days. Um, it's your your slave driving. Uh, but if you can lighten it up a bit, if you can um, show them that there's a, a humorous side to all of this, um, it, it communicates very well. And, and I think it did in our mm. case. Yeah, oh, that's fascinating. Um, Matt, you've got another patron question, I think. I do. This one's from Paul Hicks. And he asks, um, how would you compare your experiences working on your first production, Platoon, to working on something like Masters of the Air? And he also asks... Is Tom Hanks actually as nice in real life? Uh, okay, let me take them one by one. Uh, <laughs> look, when when we did Platoon, um, it was my first real major production. The first time in which I had been allowed to do it my way, mm. uh, training the actors in full immersion and so on and so forth. So there were a lot of there were a lot of things I experimented with. Um, can I get away with this? Will this work? Will that work? Well, it worked in when I was on active service, but will it work with actors? And it did. Um, but in those days, I was refining the process. I was still trying to figure out what was the best way to do it, yeah. uh, given the unusual circumstances that we were in. And over a period of about 50 more films uh, that I did since uh, since Platoon, I was able to really refine it. And, and now it's known as, you know, the Captain Dime method. Mm-hmm. And and everybody who works for me knows that method and exercise. Mm-hmm. So it, it's been a huge leap, not only in, in technology, but in the way we apply um, our method of, of prepping actors to get ready to, to do an individual story. And it doesn't make any difference what that story is. It could be the future, as, as we did in uh, Starship Troopers, or it could be the ancient past, as we did uh, in Alexander. Mm-hmm. So we've we've been able to refine and and yet maintain flexibility in how we put these things together, um, and so there's been a great leap. Yeah. Um, and is Tom Hanks the kind of nice guy that everybody says he is? Yes, he is. Um, <laughs> Thank God and, for that. <laughs> and I say that with with great reverence because Tom has been enormously supportive of the way we do things. He is an amateur World War II historian. He's interested in this stuff. He believes that, as we do, that uh, one of the things we can do with uh, with uh, entertainment, uh, television, or or motion pictures, is to shine some long overdue and and much deserved light on the men and women who wear our uniform and uh, and who put their lives on the line every day. Mm. Uh, so Tom Tom is that kind of guy. Yes. Oh, fantastic! And we we're, we're really looking forward to seeing if Greyhound 2 ever comes out, because we 
Yeah, I've, I've, heard a lot of, great. I've heard a lot about that. And Greyhound 1 was was quite... Oh, a, we loved it. We thought it was fantastic. An interesting film to work on. So mm. and Tom Tom tells me that Greyhound 2 is coming. So I'm, oh, I've got okay. my Navy uniforms broken out here and ready to go. <laughs> Outstanding. That's what we like hey. to hear. Yeah, confirmed. <laughs> nice. Um, I mean, one thing that stands out to me is when we've spoken to you before, you've talked about how you like to include, you know, small details and get things across in a, in a human way as well. Were there any small details that you sort of managed to include in your advising? So, you know, say a, an actor's looking for something to do in the background or, you know, he wants, he wants, uh, take, take Crosby's, uh, his, his friend's, um, snow globe. Snow globe. That was obviously from, um, from Crosby's, you know, own, uh, uh, diaries, but w- those kind of small inclusions. Were there any any things that stood out to you that you wanted to get in there when you were you know advising? Well, the character of Crosby pukes a lot, does, uh, yeah. and, does, and so yeah. we had, <laughs> we had to work on upchucking uh, appropriately. <laughs> uh, but when you're talking about background, I remember our com- our previous conversation, uh, and and I I said at the time that no detail no detail is too small. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you've got to pay attention to what's happening in the background. And and many directors uh, up to this point don't care. You know, just make it busy. Get somebody doing something better. Yeah. Well, in in uh, the RAF bases that were used by American forces, the 8th Air Force in World War II, <clears throat> of course, the ubiquitous method of transportation was the bicycle. And so we had to, it, it was bicycles everywhere. And in fact, that was, that was true. They rode bicycles everywhere around yeah. the hard stand from one place to another and all of the bases. So uh, we, we found a bunch of uh, young men and women who could, who could ride bicycles and let them go. Uh, and that was fine. Uh, we got great kick out of the females in the land army. Yeah, that's great. Inclusion. They were in the the cows through in the background. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, like, yeah that's being, a lot of depth. It does. Mm. Yeah, we knew, the inclusion we of that, something like that. Is, and we even got some of them who were Yorkshire cows, and you know they've got that Yorkshire accent, and uh, and I I absolutely love it. And so we wanted <laughs> to say as much as we could. Yeah. Um, so that was all good stuff. Um, and we wanted. We were very. I was very interested in. Um, the ground maintenance crews. Uh, there is a tendency in a story like this to stay in the airplane. Uh, and that's where the drama is. Uh, but so much of the success that the eight Air Force units had um, in uh, the ETO was because of dedicated maintenance guys, right. uh, people who were on the ground working on those aircraft and patching holes and tuning engines and all that sort of thing. And we were very Massive fortunate work to have, when you think about it. Yeah, we were very, very fortunate to have Raph Law uh, portray a, a real character uh, mm. who was the maintenance chief for the Bloody 100 uh, and a little mechanical genius. You know, in those days, we were driving Model A's and Model T's and <laughs> every farm kid knew how to fix a tractor and all that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And he was that kind of kid. Uh, but uh, we wanted to spend as much time as we could, as the script would allow, the story would allow, uh, to make sure that we 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 acknowledged how hard that work was. Yeah. Uh, and we did. Yeah. Another thing that, that we we really emphasized, and I'm I'm not sure how UK audience is going to take all of this, 
but there was uh, there was a, a disconnect uh, between the uh, American approach to the bomber war and the RAF approach to the bomber yeah. war. The yeah, RAF those scenes didn't go unnoticed. That's for sure. Yeah. yeah, the RAF believed that carpet bombing at night uh, mm-hmm. saved lives. Mm. And the uh, Americans thought that, well, a precision bombing from high altitude daylight uh, was the best way to go. And, and that was argued vociferously, uh, both at the, you know, the MOD and, and the American uh, Pentagon about which way to go with this. And I, I said, you know, we, we need to make sure we get that in there. And, mm. and we did. Um, and, and I thought that was a great thing. The other thing that, that, I got a kick out of it was we heard stories all the time from people at Thorpe Abbott's and, and uh, other bases uh, in East Anglia that, that told us about the kids, the kids yeah. were, the kids were kids and they loved bombers and big things and action and adventure. And they were all over the place and they had to chase them off the airfield all the time. And yeah. I said, well, that's, that's a cute thing. We need to make sure we get that. And we did. Yeah, and I love the inclusion great. of the kids makes it really human. It gives it a very, you know, and the interactions yeah. with, you know, Ref Law, they give it a real human mm. element. I, I, mm. I really like those sequences. Yeah. Yeah. Going back to the mechanics, um, I really love that inclusion because they're seldom seen in, in movies mm. and, and productions. And I, I love how this Master of the Air took its time out to give them time to do their jobs and show their jobs and then you obviously you have Crosby's narration and he reiterates it straight after saying look it's not for them we're not in the air we can't do our jobs and it it's one of the things that I love the show for is that it does show that it's this big family it's not just the guys in the bombers it's everyone on that airbase doing the job um and other things I love was just seeing finally seeing things like uh, mechanics dungarees and tankers jackets and uh, it's just the, sort of the, the array of costumes. There's the, the little details in there that you were talking about. They all come through. Listen, the, the costumes were magnificent. Mm. Um, and where the hell they found most of this stuff, I don't know. But if, if, you, if you looked at how a bomber crewman was dressed to go on a mission and he had long underwear and then he had... Uh, the uh, poopy suit that was an electric suit, the blue yep. suit, and then he had coveralls over that, and then he had a jacket over that, and and uh, and all of this had to plug into the electrical system of the aircraft. And I said, you know, are we going to see any of this stuff? Well, we saw a little bit of it, but the point that the wardrobe people made, the costume designers, was that they need to feel this. Yeah, and I said, you're you're on my wavelength. That's right. exactly it's that immersion right. again, isn't it? Yeah, that that will affect their performance, and it did. Uh, yeah. But they they did a magic job. Uh, the wardrobe people, especially research and that, all that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, we we looked into the company that supplied a lot of the uh, like the flight jackets and things like that, and the levels of detail they went in to yeah. to do it. I think they made and original think, pieces as well. And yeah, all sorts like original flying hats and stuff. Yeah. Really Even these, cool. Like pearl grips on someone's M nineteen eleven. It's it's mm. such a small detail, but it adds so much to the character. We we often talk on the show about characterization through costume, and I think people think in, in a war movie you can't do it because of uniforms, but you can. And Masters of the Air gets that, you know. And, and these guys were young; they like their fashion. So some guys have got like the rough leather showing. Some guys haven't, you know, the, the crushed hats, things like that. It just adds so much more to the production. And it's it's just something. Yeah, we we found that, um, and and. 
as we began to train and they began to wear this gear, um, I said, look, you know, uh, young men are individuals and they're in a uniform. Yes, I get that. Mm. But there are little touches that they'll always do, especially about the way they wear their hat and the way it's shaped or a scarf. Uh, those are things that, that are individual character elements. And they're true. I mean, all yeah. you got to do is take a look at, at the, uh, you know, an air crew posed out, out in front of a B-17 in World War II, and you'll see all sorts of individuals. Mm. I said, go there. Yeah. If it works, we're going to let you have it. How did you find wearing the air crewman's gear? Because I know I've seen you photos with, you know, Semprite Ryan, you're in the, the M41 stuff in platoon. Obviously, you've got your third patterns on. Like, how did you... Is that the first time you'd wore any of that stuff? Is it? Yeah, it. How does it, it rank in comfiness to everything else you've I, worn I in your career? I felt a little like a Michelin man, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, I had so much crap on me that I practically couldn't bend my knees. Uh, and of course, they were younger men than I am. But uh, but you, I think you get used to it, and the more you wear it, the more it bends with you. Mm. Um, and and you kind of wear it in like you would a catcher's mitt or something. It, it sort of shapes to your body. Yeah. Um, and I what but what what occurred to me when I was wearing these electric suits and that sort of thing is, geez, what happens if suddenly this short circuits? Yeah. And and I made and in fact we talked to several people who told me they did it constantly. Wow. The damn things would would short circuit and they'd get burns where the uh, where the connectors were wow. uh, under underneath the thing so i i don't think we specifically showed that but we found out that actually happened mm. um, and of course you know the sequences with uh, at altitude and no, not having any gloves on and trying to handle a machine that the i was going to mention that yeah you know you're automatically frost burned and, mm. and you're useless at that point we did show that um so uh, we wearing wearing that stuff just as I did, just to see what it was like, was an experience. How does it rate with all the uniforms you've worn? Is it is it one you'd want to do again or no? Probably probably out of all of them, uh, the biggest pain in the ass was wearing all that stuff and <laughs> and trying to figure out how do they yeah. work like this. Sure. What's your favorite uniform to wear? Like, what's your favorite things? Well, there's a lot to be said for naked. Um, sure, <laughs> but, but you don't you don't get a lot of that uh, no, unless no. you're doing Alexander or something. Um, yeah, I, I guess the I guess the looser it is, uh, and the less constricting it is, mm. uh, the more I'm happy with it. Sure, uh, I think I think we we try to overprotect sometimes in combat, and and what happens is you you limit mobility, which then becomes yeah. a, a, a serious liability. Mm. So I don't know, prob probably uh, something between what we wore in Vietnam and what we ended up with in the desert. So one thing we mentioned there um, was the the handling of the gun um, without gloves on. And there's another scene in the episode that drops this, well, has just dropped when this is going to air. And it's the scene where um, one of the, the M2's uh, cocking charger handles is shot off and the guy grabs a spent case he jams it and uses it to to cock the weapon. Was that in the script? Was that something the armor suggested, or was that something from you? It That's wasn't in the it wasn't know. in the original script. Okay, um, but it was. In that a felt later. like a that felt like a Dale Die thing to me. It I had a little to do with it. Uh, um, okay. uh, 
<laughs> and at first we didn't, we weren't sure that that could happen. Mm. Um, and then we got to talking to these people and some armors and, and that sort of thing. And yeah, if you can, if you can get something that will grip and hold it, that, but that bolt is extremely heavy. Yep. And it has an unlocking situation where you've got to pull the bolt operating rod handle down to unlock and then pull the bolt to the rear. If you can get something that will hold through that, it could be done. And the more we messed with it and, and made it happen, I said, yeah, that's pretty cool. And then mm -hmm. we found some, some uh, memoirs that mentioned it, uh, oh, that there were, amazing. there were, there that's were jury rigged things uh, yeah. used all the time. And so we, we did that. No, that's great. That'll uh, if if anyone gets rowdy about that now, we can say no, no. I love that. I thought that was a great little thing because <laughs> I've seen I've seen guys do it. Like I've seen mentions of it being done in the field, but never in the air. So I thought that's well, great. Look, that makes it, complete sense. But but it's the same in the field as it is in the air. If mm. if you've got a weapon that's malfunctioned and you've got a brain in your head, um, you know a young man's going to look at that and say, "Shit, I got to figure this out," and he will mm -hmm. somehow or another. He'll find a way yeah. to figure it out. Yeah, and it was yeah. the same then. It's the same now. Mm, of course. So, how long are you on set then for Masters of the Air? When did you start, and how long are you? How long were you involved for? I, I guess I started in. Um, well, I started prior to leaving the states. Sure. But I started uh, research work on it in uh, February, I think, of the year, and then um, we went to uh, UK. Mm -hmm. uh, and and got got a great apartment. My exo and I lived in Eaton, right across from the uh, oh, from the oh, it's great. Very nice. Yeah. Mm. Um, but uh, we went over in uh, March, and then I was I was there till almost Christmas. But we, it was extremely difficult. And uh, anybody who lived uh, in UK at that point knows the difficulty of the Great COVID panic. And, and that yeah. was, it was frustrating. And uh, I mean, I call them the COVID cops. And we had, <laughs> we had more on the set, I think, at many times that we had grips and gappers. Uh, I know. Uh, if, if you look at the, the credits at the end of the, you know, the show, you can see there's at least a dozen names there under, under the, like the COVID, COVID Marshall. department. COVID yeah, Marshall. Right? Yeah. Bigger than the wardrobe department. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. you know, I, I'm not, I'm not going to, it could have flown their own wing. <laughs> I'm not going to bore your audience with my opinions about the whole thing, but but I will say this: there were times when it would, you know, somebody would test positive for COVID, and they'd have to pull an actor out, mm. and we'd mm. have to scramble the schedule and so on and so forth. And this, and there were long lines to get just onto the set, and all the mask stuff. And uh, anyway, it was it was frustrating. And mm. the neat thing, in my view is British film crews, uh, who I have a lot of respect for and worked for plenty of times over the years. They they took it in stride, you know, and typical British stiff upper lip, uh, as they demonstrated in World War II, and just said, okay, we got to do this, we got to do this, it's worth it, let's go to work. But there were long delays, just getting things rolling on a set on any day. Mm. And, and frankly, I think it took more time uh, in the overall schedule to get it done because of these COVID precautions. Yeah, of course. And obviously I think, I think um, a few sort of uh, dates that were sort of mentioned here and there for dropping the show, obviously that got pushed back. So I think that's one of the reasons why we've waited so long for Master of the Air, because obviously yeah. we had a massive pandemic halfway through 
shooting the film, the, the, yeah, the show. Yeah. So it's it's yeah. something it was that can't be held. And yeah. and listen, trying to get trying to get in the UK out of the US was a bit of mm. and magic that had to be done just to get us clear to go in and, and get to work. Yeah. I bet I it yeah. was. We talked about things that you managed to get into the show and you know little nuances and that sort of thing. Was there anything that you would have you wanted to get in but you couldn't kind of like get it in there because of you know production side of things? It was really well balanced. Uh, the mm-hmm. writers did a great job on the thing, frankly. Uh, I was afraid we wouldn't spend enough time with the gunners. Mm. Um, I was afraid that we wouldn't spend enough time with um, um, the maintenance guys. Um, I was I was afraid that we were going to short shrift um, a number of things, um, the flat farms and and. And and what were the where were the Germans? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, what what was it like to be on an anti aircraft crew firing an eighty eight? You know, constantly. Mm-hmm. And we managed to get all that stuff in uh, to some degree, whether it was yeah. lesser or, or, or greater yeah. degree. It kind of depended. Um, and and a lot of that we we actually shot, but it didn't wind up in the you know everything. Some things wind up on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Actually. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I look at it in balance, and I've seen it all now, uh, when I look at it in balance, um, we at least got some taste of those things that had me worried. So I no longer worry about it. I think it's a pretty balanced picture mm. of the experience of people flying bombers in the 8th Air Force. Yeah. No, we, we think that too. Um, we we saw it in December. We, we're lucky to get a screener from Apple. and. Yeah, we we love it. You know, we were just we just we're just loving it so far, and being able to having seen it and then re talk about it is just a joy. Um, so what? So, so uh, Matt, are you? I was sorry. just going to jump off that and say. So you mentioned there the flat crews. So we also, as in addition to seeing the the air crews, we also see um, some of the German flat crews, and we also see some Soviets and some Volksturm and and that sort of thing. What was you, we, your involvement in that? I assume was similar to the air crews, and you would have had to have done, you know, your own individual research for those kind of aspects as well. well what kind I've, of um, process was was that like? I've, I've got members of my staff who are kind of World War II German experts. Oh, there um, you go. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, John Whitby, who's a Brit and has worked for me quite a bit, and Laird McIntosh, who trained the Germans uh, for uh, or helped me train the Germans for uh, Band of Brothers. Mm. Uh, they were there and they were very helpful. So we didn't have a lot of time with, them, but we had a week or so before they were going to shoot that we could kind of mold them into uh, that, yeah. that sort of uh, accurate look at the Germans. Um, and, and that, that was difficult when it got into the POW sequences, which are coming up. And, yes. and so we had to, I mean, the Luft, the Luftstahlags were different than other prisoner mm. war camps. And so we had to be very careful with that. And and my German guys were, were tremendous. My German experts were really very good at that. Mm. Um, but, you know, the, the details, sometimes the funniest damn things in details. We have several sequences. I'm, I'm just going to trip off the gun line here and uh, talk about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Go for it. But here's an example. Um, we Brits eat differently than Americans do. 
You ever notice that? Knives and you put your your knives yeah. down when you're eating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so we have a lot of these sequences that that took place in the in the Thorpe Abbott's uh, mess hall. Mm. And uh, at first they had it all British stuff. They had people in white coats and napkins over there. I said, no, we don't do that. Um, (laughs) I'll allow you to put um, tablecloths, but that's as far as we're going. We're not going to have little whisk rooms, you know. (laughs) So. uh, so the interesting thing was I would I would go in and, and we'd be shooting a scene at which the guys are eating dinner, or eating breakfast. And I could always tell the Brits. The Americans would cut their food and, and put their not and do it the American way. And I would go over and say to the Brits, listen, you know, it's obvious that you're not eating in the American fashion. And they go, oh, what? there's no doubt. Yes, there is. And, and we'd have to show them. Uh, but that's kind of detail that would that I wind up screwing around with for hours. Finally, they would look at it and they say, "Well, I don't know why you do that. That's a silly way to eat. It's the American way to eat. Just do it that way." And yeah. and so we 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 would see those kind of uh, things every day. Mm. Mm. It is those small details that enrich something. Sure, like that. and it is that small, and it's something that someone will know and someone will pick out on if you don't do yeah. it. Yeah, um, of course, yeah. exactly. And there'll be some stuff I missed. There's no question. Oh, I can't wait. My email will write up here. Oh yeah. Oh, there's been some. There's been some takes this this month. <laughs> um. So my next question is: um, You played uh, uh, Sink in in Banner Brothers. Um. I wondered: Was there at any point, uh, like the chance of maybe a cameo, perhaps in this one? Listen, I, pub, I I was desperate. Could have been in the background of the pub. Yeah. I I was desperate to get one, and and there was a version of the scripts that had um a visit by uh, General LeMay. Yeah. Uh, it was a big deal in the, in the bomber force. Curtis LeMay, and yeah, I said, yeah. God, I, w- I want that. I want <laughs> that. And, uh, uh, but I, it's with, with this trilogy, it's the same reason that I couldn't get a piece of, uh, of, uh, of the Pacific is that my performance uh, is Colonel Sink and Band of Brothers was, it absolutely identified me in the world of Spielberg yeah. and Hanks World War Two. And, yeah. and they said, we, we can't put you in there. They, they'll say, what's Colonel Sick doing here? Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. And I thought maybe, I thought maybe given the amount of time since Band of Brothers was out, that, that maybe I could get away with it. And I was, I was really going to push for it uh, until uh, I read it, 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 one version of the script. They, they cut the, uh, General Curtis LeMay piece, and I said, "Well, I'm screwed. That's it." So, so I didn't, I didn't get in. I wanted to, but I couldn't get in. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> we we did scour scenes, looking in the background, saying, <laughs> "Is is Dale in there or not?" And so yeah. we, had to, we had to ask just in case. I mean, of course, you must have seen it by now. But what do you think of the show as as just a a viewer? I was so busy uh, while we were shooting in the UK that I didn't have a lot of time to see dailies. Mm-hmm. Um, and I often, in, in bouncing from set to set, as I, I frequently did, I said, my God, how's this all going to cut together? I, I don't know. It, it all looks scatterbrained to me. Um, and, and I was afraid of that. Um, I was afraid uh, the, the continuity, the flow of the story uh, throughout the series would be damaged. Um, but I've seen it all now. And I got to tell you, it, that's not the case. No. The guy yeah. who cut this, and 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 I give all credit to Gary Getzman, um, who works for Playtone with Tom Hanks. 
I give him full credit because he was a supervising editor, the guy who, who cut it. And, uh, and every time I would complain or worry, uh, Getzman would come up to me and say, listen, there's a film you shoot and there's a film you edit. And then there's the film that you see. And I said, okay, I got it. And he was right. Like he was right. The mm. editing was brilliant. Mm. No, it is good. Really good. And especially in episode three, I, I, I just, I can't get over how good I think that episode is. Um, one of the best hours of television I've seen, maybe for just superb, um, as is the rest of the series. And Matt, anything else? One last final question for me is, do you have a favourite scene from the show that you worked on? There, there are several, I think, which uh, which really uh, stand out to me. I like the se- sequence with uh, Clevin in the cockpit and mm. the B-17 is getting the crap knocked out of it. Mm. And they're about uh, to yeah. go down and uh, and... Uh, everybody wants to bail out. You know, we get we got to leave this thing. It's just not going to make. And Clevin says, "We're going to sit here and we're going to take it." Yeah, and I thought, you know, that's that's the spirit. Mm. Uh, and I, I love that one. And then I the stunt guys were absolutely brilliant. Um, the UK stunt guys that, that that did this piece with us, um, and they staged this fire on the interior of a fuselage. And I said, my God, somebody could get killed doing this. Uh, but lo and behold, it, it was based on an actual incident that happened sure. in which the oxygen system blew up. And- oh, yes. Oh, that's that amazing sequence in episode two, isn't it? Yeah, I, I, I remember that scene. And there were two stunt guys in that. Wow. And they went, you know, ass all over tea kettle, uh, getting out of there. And I said, whoa. Wow. And I said, if that... If there's one sequence that shows you how brutal it was, uh, look, a lot of when we do infantry stuff, people think people think, well, you know, that's eyeball to eyeball with the enemy. And there's very little that's more frightening than that. Mm. Uh, And and those guys in the air, they're disconnected. They never see the enemy. Well, they don't have to. They just have to see the damage that the enemy can do. And that sequence where the aircraft blows up on the on the interior brought that home to me. Um, so there are a bunch of a bunch of uh, scenes that stand out, but those two kind of stick in my mind. Mm, very powerful. But Butler in that sequence is, is everything you'd want in a captain, isn't he? He's trying to get yeah. his men back and mm. you know, sit here and take it. It's a great line and he delivers it the exact way you'd want as well. Yeah, he did. Yeah. A lot of hard to act with the eyes, just just the eyes with the with the cockpit. Of course. The thing. And that's something that I, I love about it. And you know we we had we had everybody had misgivings. Everybody who wasn't Spielberg, Hanks, me, and Gary Gutsman had had misgivings about you know it's eye acting. How are they? How are they? Do? I said they're fine. And the first time you take that mask off of one of them just to show their face, and the audience knows they're at ten thousand or greater, you're going to blow credibility all to hell. And mm-hmm. don't do that. So we had some we had some arguments, but finally uh, we said, "All right, that's the way it's got to be." They yeah. would not have flown except momentarily without that mask, and and that's the way it went. I suppose as an actor, as long as you're doing the full you know gamut of the facial expressions that you would expect for a scene yeah. underneath the mask, the eyes will convey much. everything that is needed yeah. anyway. Yeah, because yeah, that's what the that's what we tend to look at, you know, when we're looking at someone either on screen or in person, we're looking at the, the eyes. eyes. of the window to the soul. And of course. Yeah, absolutely. That's what you get. 
We are so glad you could join us to chat about the show because, you know, when we had you on a few months ago and you gave us that little tidbit of of talking about it and that, you know, that really excited us about what the show Mm. was going to be. And then to get the chance to like watch the entire show before it aired. And then now that we're doing weekly reviews of it, it's been, it's been such a a fascinating sort of progression moving from being able to, you know, finally talk about the show. And it's great to get your insights on, you know, all the minute details that went into making it. It's dynamite here in the States. And and I understand it's doing really well in Great Britain. So we'll yeah. we'll see how it goes. Keep keep me posted. But but my initial uh, my initial assessment here is that we got a hit on both sides of the pond. I think so. I think it's pretty safe to say that. Yeah, it, I think it, having watched it all, it will stand the test of time, just like Bandy Brothers did. I think. And <laughs> give it time. Yeah. 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 Uh, everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Fighting on Film. You can follow us on uh, the socials. X, Twitter, Instagram, whatever you like. And uh, we'll catch you again next time for some more War Movie Reviews. Thanks for listening, everybody. Thanks for joining us, Dale, and thanks to everyone for listening as well. Thanks, guys. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.